Welcome to episode 13 of the HPBA podcast. For this very special episode, we interviewed some of the APP leaders of the HPBA. We discussed a number of issues relevant to APPs, such as their career journeys, their advice to young APPs just getting started, and how to navigate the relationship between GME trainees and APPs on the same team. In addition, we discussed issues relevant to surgeons wanting to incorporate APPs into their practice, including how to talk to leadership about this issue and how to build a meaningful relationship with a new member of the team. Finally, we discussed the upcoming APP Symposium, which will be held Wednesday, August 4th, as a part of the annual meeting in Miami. This episode is a must-listen for any APP interested in HPB surgery, or for any surgeon who works with APPs or is looking to add an APP to their team. Without further ado, episode 13 of the HPBA podcast. Welcome to the HPBA podcast, everyone. We have a very special episode today. Um, we have a number of our very close colleagues who work alongside of us in the clinic, on the floors, in the operating room. We're very happy to have members of our APP group within the HPBA um, joining with us today. And Tim and I are excited to talk about you. Um, why don't we go around and everyone introduce themselves and tell us where you're from and um, uh, what group you work with, and then we'll get started. Let's start with Sarah Reed. Hey, good evening, everybody. Um, first, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. I'm originally from upstate New York and attended the Duke University PA program uh, back in 2008. I worked in medical oncology for a brief period of time and then returned to Duke in 2012. Um, I worked in the outpatient setting uh, with our group, taking care of HPV patients for approximately six years. And then I transitioned inpatient a little over three years ago. I have been involved with the HPBA group since 2014, and I am nearing my uh, the end of my term as APP chair. Great, thanks, Lindsay. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me as well. My name is Lindsay Manis. I am uh, the lead HPB surgery PA at Johns Hopkins, where I have uh, primarily been in an ambulatory role for the past 12 years. Um, about three years ago, I also took on a, a role with business and clinical practice operations for the surgical advanced practice group at Hopkins. I was fortunate to be involved in starting the uh, APP symposium within AHPBA and have uh, very happily started to uh, transition that role over to some new faces, getting some new people involved, and I'm really happy to be here today. Fantastic. Let's move along here to Whitney. Hey, everybody. I'm uh, Whitney Dewhurst. I am one of the inpatient APPs at MD Anderson. Um, I work with Dr. Zhang, uh, Dr. Lee, um, and Dr. Maxwell, and I do a combo of liver and pancreas. Great. Janelette. Hey, guys. Um, thanks for having us um, in this podcast. My name is Janelette Friso. I am an APP and MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I particularly work in the hepatobiliary ambulatory setting, as well as the operating room. Been working there for about almost six years now. Um, and just picking back on Lindsay's um, HPBA symposium, I was lucky enough to present in 2019 about my role um, as integrative um, APP within the hepatobiliary operating room. So. Okay, it was exciting, so looking forward to this year's HPBA. Fantastic. And then we have Morgan. 
Hi, thank you both so much for this opportunity. My name is Morgan Bruno. I'm an inpatient nurse practitioner for the Department of Surgical Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Um, I primarily work with uh, pancreatic surgeons, um, Dr. Matt Katz and Dr. Um, Michael Kim. And I have been fortunate enough to be around the AHPBA um, realm since Lindsay had started this up. And I've been just very excited to see how it's grown over the years and really looking forward to um, the 2021 symposium. Great. And last but not least, Melissa. Hi, thank you for having me. My name is Melissa Arvide. I'm the third uh, inpatient um, APP here at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. Um, I do primarily liver, but I've gotten my hands a little bit um, more experience with pancreas with these girls. Um, my attendings are Dr. Vote, um, Dr. Trankow, Dr. Ikoma, and um, I'm sure you know him, Dr. Newhook over there. Um, so I've been here <laughs> with Donalette for about six years, um, but I also have a special interest in doing research. That's a, a little bit more of my passion as well. Great. So I have, a, I have a question just to kind of get us started off. So Sarah, you mentioned kind of the different roles that you've had. And I know, Whitney, you worked as a, a, a floor nurse on like a med-onc floor at the start of your career. Can you guys talk kind of about how you see that working in the career of an APP? Is it worthwhile to, you know, change fields, to try new things? Do you think that that's helped you? Um, and, you know, for, for somebody who's maybe in PA or NP school right now, what do you suggest, you know, going, if they really like HPB, should they go work on the, on the inpatient side or on the floor or go to clinic or try to switch every three or four years at the beginning of their career? How do you kind of see that playing out? What's your advice there? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I can start with that. Um, you know, I've always wanted to work with oncology patients, and that actually drove my decision to go to PA school. Um, I wanted to, to specialize early on, and I really enjoyed working in medical oncology. Um, I started off in private practice, but I missed the academic setting. Um, I actually met my supervising physician, Dr. Blazer, as a PA student, and um, when he needed an APP, I returned to Duke. Uh, I, I think for me, the Outpatient settings that are really strong foundation to take care of these HPB patients. And I transitioned to the inpatient setting really for family decision. I now have two daughters who are almost four and seven, um, and I needed to be home and more available for them in the afternoon. So I worked the very early shift, which works out well for me. And as you know, the surgery world starts early. Um, and I think that foundation in the outpatient setting was, was very, very helpful. Um, so I know why the patients are having the surgery that they have. I know the new adjunct therapy that they've had and how that can kind of impact their post-operative course. Um, and I really enjoy the lateral flexibility. So I've been with our group for nine years and have no intentions of ever leaving them, um, but I've been able to, to enjoy the outpatient setting, the inpatient setting. Um, and you know, I know there's always opportunities to get in the OR if um, my real bosses, the, my children ever allow me to switch my schedule again. Do you, do you think that that's, you know, the way it should be done? Like, do you think that changing settings in the first few years of your career is sort of the way to go, or is it just kind of worked out for you? You know, I always tell when we have new grads or students that come through, 
I encourage your first job, you should at least stay for 18 months. You know, I think it's really hard to make a decision about what you like, what you don't um, until you have about a year and a half in. I think for me that that transition has been very satisfying and very helpful because I, I feel like I have a more in-depth understanding of these HPV patients and kind of what they need in their comprehensive care. Um, so it has also challenged me to, um, you know, learn more about some of the acute post-operative complications and in, in hospital medicine that I hadn't really managed in six years. So I do encourage, you know, pursuing some form of growth, whether it's a research avenue or a different avenue within your disease. Um, so I think it's been been very, you know, gratifying from a professional standpoint and a um, a growth standpoint. Whitney, how about you and your experiences, as Tim mentioned? Yeah, the the nurse to NP transition um, is a learning curve. And I was on a stem cell unit at MD Anderson for about eight years before I made the, the transition to surgery. And um, it was a lot to learn to go from medonc to, to surgonc. Um, I don't regret it. I love the surgery world. I agree with Sarah that... Um, surgery for um, for APPs is a really good family balance, maybe not for the surgeons, but for us, it works really well um, to have, have a young family and be able to get off at a fairly reasonable time, start the day early while they're at school. And um, so I think for, for young APPs with families, you know, working in, in the surgical world is a, a good avenue. Um, I, um, as far as, you know, changing careers, I think it's, I think you do get, as a nurse at least, you, you get bored sometimes with the same thing over and over again. And so for me, it was great to change to a completely different field and, and have to learn something new. Um, but now I just, I love HPV so much. I don't see myself ever leaving that. Um, I think it's one of those things once you're in, you're in. <laughs> And speaking of kind of uh, also some different backgrounds, and everyone has very different backgrounds, but I, I, as a, I kind of have the inside track, Melissa, why don't you tell us about your background is also different than both Sarah's and Whitney's in your path to becoming an APP. It speaks sure. to your what you like to do, for sure. Yeah, so I um, actually graduated with a degree in biochem, and I went straight to research. Um, and I it was something that I liked. I thought it was really interesting. I've always been kind of a very curious person. Um, but what I found myself after a couple of years is that um, I wasn't really passionate about the research I was doing. And I felt that I was lacking that connection with the end result. So the therapy to the patients. Um, and as luck would have it, I didn't know what a, a PA was actually for a good five years after I graduated. Um, but as soon as I found out what that amazing field was, I, I knew it was my calling. And essentially what I wanted to do is be able to, to bridge that gap. And I always say like from bench side to bedside. Um, and I think that background has really fulfilled, fulfills me even now with the current job situation because I'm able to still have, ask these questions and try to um, come up with research projects and try to um, provide whether it's quality improvements or um, learn more about the different diseases and how, for example, how different mutations um, affect 
who may or may not be a better surgical candidate? Um, why are we taking this population of patients to surgery and not these? Why are we more aggressive in our treatments? And so all that has really kind of helped me um, find my, my passion in, in my role. Very interesting. So um, maybe we can, you know, it's, it sounds like a, a lot of different backgrounds uh, brought into becoming AVP, particularly for HPB. And the same goes for all of us, you know, coming to where we are as, you know, I know Tim and I both have very different paths to where we are today. So clearly all these, these things shape us. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the individual, the different types of practices and the different models of an APP, um, particularly for HPB. Uh, practices. Uh, we have people with us today who are uh, inpatient, outpatient, uh, both inpatient, outpatient, um, and in the OR. Lindsay, why don't you tell us about how um, how the APP program um, works at, at Hopkins and, and how your um, team members, uh, you work with them? Sure. So it, it, it certainly the roles have evolved over the 12 or 13 years since I have been there. And we have done a lot of work. One of my particular interests is sort of maximizing the scope um, of practice. We know in HPV and with cancer, there's a lot of care coordination and there can be an, a lot of administrative burden. And so really working to optimize what we can utilize our, our end colleagues for and what we can really shift to APPs to be provider specific duties and offload from the surgeon. So within my ambulatory group, we have a, a group of nurses who really support um, the office care coordination, sort of pre-op, post-operative issues. And then um, we have a couple APPs who do robotic first assist and, and scrub into the OR. And then there are a group of us that have a, a very independent uh, ambulatory practice. Um, and we try to align us with specific surgeons and then also with multi-D clinics where we can cohort and offload a group of patients that need longitudinal surveillance. Pancreatic cysts are a good example of that. I started our pancreatic cyst clinic back in 2010. Um, and at this point, probably end up seeing about six or 700 patients a year independently, um, which is a big you know, volume to, to take off of our surgeons. And we've found that is also a big job satisfier uh, to our, our APPs. So, so you're running a cyst clinic and then you have like certain criteria where you say, okay, this patient needs to be considered for surgery and that's where you bring a surgeon in or how does that coordination work? Yeah, it, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a well-oiled machine sort of from intake through to the clinic appointment and long-term surveillance. So we do cursory review of the records that are available and make a decision. Are there worrisome or high-risk features at the onset? And that helps to sort of stratify where they should go initially. But for those patients, like, you know, most sort of IPMNs that have no worries and features and need surveillance, we follow those or I follow those. And then if they develop changes on imaging or their particular concerns, then transition them back to a surgeon. Um, ideally, when they have that worrisome feature, or high risk feature and are actually appropriate for surgical consultation. That's interesting. Now, is that the majority of what you're doing? Or are you also uh, working with another surgeon to kind of do their uh, follow up and that kind of stuff? Or what, what's your typical week look like? Yeah, I seem to have many hats and I seem to only accrue them as time goes on. Um, I have worked with Chris Wolfgang for, for 12 years as my primary surgeon and 
different surgeons as they've come in and gone from Hopkins. The cyst clinic is a large part of my role at this point. I also um, am the manager for our HPV advanced practice group. And then I have this sort of manager position for the business and clinical practice of the whole surgical APP group, which really, again, was born sort of out of that desire to try to align work with scope and, and maximize and efficiencies and retention of, of APPs. Yeah. So speaking of retention, and I think, you know, you talked a little bit about job satisf satisfaction. What's your advice to a young HPB surgeon or even a senior HPB surgeon who gets a new APP, right? And they're assigned to his or her clinic and they want to make sure that that APP enjoys their job. Um, you know, how do you think, how do you think that role should be built? How do you think, um, you know, what should that dialogue be between the the surgeon and the APP? I think it, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable sometimes, right? Because you don't always work directly for the surgeon. And so there's sort of different bosses coming at you with different expectations. And how do you think, you know, what's your advice to surgeons trying to navigate that? I think Lindsay, as a manager of APPs, you'd probably be in a good spot to, you probably get people coming to you complaining about surgeons. So you might have interesting insight. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I always tell, I, I have this conversation with our fellows all the time as they're, they're leaving. And it really, I think APPs as a whole are very motivated, hardworking group of people who want to contribute to both the surgeon practice and to their patients. And so that relationship can be a beautiful partnership mm -hmm. if you invest in that APP. I think there is a lot of focus on, you know, of course, and very appropriately, uh, house staff, fellow, and junior faculty development, but a lot of institutions have really no mentoring development or interest um, formally in the, the APP sort of mentoring or, you know, Melissa's interest in research, those different things. And the surgeon having a conversation with the APP to find out what their interests are, how they can involve them in those aspects of their practice, and really just working together to see what they can offload to that APP. Um, it, it really can just be, it, it's a beautiful thing when it works well. I just wanted to kind of add off of what Lindsay said about, you know, how does a, how does an MD, a physician and APP kind of that relationship and that investment um, I think, and kind of asking your APP, what are you interested in? And I think we have a variety of ideas of what drives us personally and professionally. And I think as as an attending physician, sitting down with your APP and kind of putting that on a timeline and mentoring them and helping them and figuring out ways that will still keep them engaged. That's how you're going to keep retain them. Um, and just kind of building that relationship and us having a physician mentor is is great because I can tell you I, I can't tell you the number of doors that have been opened um, from the opportunities of my attendings and whether it be speaking at AHPBA um, you know or you know manuscripts abstract all, all of that and quality improvement projects um, it just takes one person to kind of latch on to and 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 go. Because people are really, really, really interested in so many different avenues. They just don't have kind of the support system. So I think if, you know, as an attending physician, investing that time, effort, and energy, you're going to get so much more out of your APP um, by building that really, really strong relationship with them. 
get to know your APP. Morgan, why don't you pitch in? I know, obviously, that I've been the fellow on your, on your service and your relationship with particularly Dr. Katz and um, the relationship that you guys have built of trust and management of, of inpatients, post-surgical patients, uh, as well as institution of kind of our pathways um, and how we care for patients. Okay. Um, so I kind of historically have to look back at this because I was the bedside nurse on the surgery floor that took care of kind of these overflow surgical oncology patients that came to our floor that needed tele or kind of more intermediate needs. And at the time, there were no inpatient APPs. And so if we needed anything from Tylenol to a discharge order to an acute issue going on, we had to page the fellow or the attending in the operating room for everything. So you can imagine your pager just blowing up. We don't know that you're in the middle of some, you know, highly vascular tumor and you're trying to do this, you know, very technical surgery. We have issues on the floor. We need someone to help us. And my only outlet was page until someone called and called you back and you got what you needed. And that led to a lot of, you know, kind of delays and even discharging because the fellows, you guys round so early, you go to the operating room, you're doing these huge complex cases and then you get out and later and okay, now we'll start doing the discharge process or things like that. And so kind of even the bed management back then was, was shaky. And so I saw kind of progressively as I was going back to nurse practitioner school, we added the surgical oncology added one, then they added two. And then I did my final clinical rotation with surgical oncology. And I said, that's it. That's what I, this is what I've always dreamed of doing. I want to do inpatient. I want to be able to kind of bridge that gap um, from the patient to the nursing to the, the actual surgical team. And I saw that there was a big need for that. So I was number three um, out of now, I think we're at 13 over a kind of, I think, nine and a half year, 10 year span. Um, and to be able to kind of be that first line of defense and help with early rescue, um, early notification, all of these things that you're kind of catching and triggering. You've known, luckily from Dr. Katz, who has graciously taken me under his wing to learn, really focus on post-operative complications over a 90-day course and taking that information to help me really focus on identifying which patients are going to be higher risk of having complications and those being at lower risk for complications. And that kind of taking the database, learning all of that information, turning that into pathways, risk stratified pathways, um, I think has really helped our team overall with patient care, patient satisfaction, nursing satisfaction, bed management, because you're able to either fast track some of these patients and then you can get them out and we get new ones in, or you take a little bit more time with those high risk patients and you invest that extra time to help potentially prevent an early readmission. So there's all these different ways of, and sometimes it's hard to convince groups that may not have had inpatients before of like, okay, well, what are, what are you bringing? How much, how much money are you going to make for the department? And that is always hard for us as inpatient APPs to quantify because we're under the surgical umbrella. So we don't have this kind of billing capability unless we're assisting in the operating room. So as an inpatient group, I always tell folks we're cost 
savers. Um, we're early rescuers. Um, and that's how we can kind of help in terms of kind of cost effectiveness and patient safety and patient satisfaction. So our role, I think, is different. You have to kind of look at it differently as opposed to like a cost of how much money are you going to help make us? It's, it's, that's not going to happen for an inpatient person. That's a really good point. Sarah, Lindsay, Whitney, maybe you guys give a quick opinion about, I've always seen just to kind of move to another facet of what Morgan just said, which I think is a very critical role, is that there's a strong decrease, I think, in the variation of care um, that occurs with uh, APPs that work alongside a team, particularly as we become so much more hyper-specialized. And everyone on this podcast is working at an institution that is very hyper-specialized. So we have the luxury of seeing the same patients over and over again. As Morgan said, she really focused on, on actually risk stratifying her own population. But what do you see as, as your role in, in delivering consistent care um, to, to patients? And I'd love to say that we as surgeons provide consistent care, but that's not, I mean, there's a lot of different team members that come through that can lead to variation. So why don't you hear from you guys? Yeah, I think one thing in general that's really unique about APPs and surgery is that we have this really unique relationship that I value very much with our surgeons. And I think that is partly due to, um, you know, you have so much responsibility in the OR. Um, so different than other specialties, you rely on your APPs to be your eyes and ears. You know, you may be in the OR for a very long case, and you have to have someone that you trust monitoring your patients and to Morgan's point of early rescue, you know, that's what I tell the residents at, at the beginning of every month is that these patients can get sick quickly. It's all about early rescue. And so I think that, you know, developing that relationship with your um, attendings is, is really priceless. Um, I manage patients for, you know, six or seven of our surgeons and they all have some subtle nuances. Um, and so over time, you know, I know how Dr. Allen may want to manage this patient versus Dr. Zani versus Dr. Litsky, for example. Um, but one of the benefits is that I also see all of their patients. And so if you see enough complications, you recognize enough of sick and not sick, you know, they may feed them at different times or, or manage strains differently, but they know that, that you can keep them safe. Um, and also in academic institutions where you have, you know, fellows and residents and junior residents, um, everyone has a very important job and role on the team. Um, but oftentimes those team members are away. And so I think the nice um, you know, one of the nice things about having an inpatient APP or APPs is that our job is to be there on the floor and keep an eye on these patients and keep them safe so that you can take them to the OR and resect their tumor or, you know, um, do what procedure that, that they need done. Lindsay, what do you think? Yeah, and I agree with everything that, that Sarah said. It was very well said. I think the other place that reducing, you know, variation is important comes into play is as we're bringing all of these patients into our institution, you know, we have a large out-of-state population, about 65% of our patients are traveling. And so having the ability to sort of look through patients as they're coming in and be able to figure out the nuances of their staging and their treatment really before we see them to determine, do they need to go to multi-D clinic? Should they really come to the surgeon's clinic? What do they need while they're in Baltimore? And just reducing the variation of the different tests that are ordered to maximize the patient's trip, the surgeon's time, and all of the resources that we have uh, is another benefit of a sort of experienced APP in the role that I think is not as well, um, or is just typically not as thought of. Yeah, Whitney. 
working with fellows. Yeah, I think that, um, or with fellows, uh, I think that our pathways um, have helped immensely in uh, reducing variation, helping to streamline things, helping to keep everybody on the same page um, so that there is less, uh, you know, when the fellow's coming on to the, the service, you know, they may have been on uh, Morgan service, but they're coming to mind, but we're using the same pathways. And so I think it keeps everybody on the same page. It's been uh, incredibly helpful, I think, to the trainees to have something to look at, to um, sort of plan ahead. Um, and then I will say that during COVID times, um, it's been very eye-opening for the three of us, me, Morgan, and Melissa, you know, all three of us had variation in our practice, even though, you know, we were following the pathways. There's minute details, but I, I would say, and they, they probably will agree, that we we are so interchangeable now with because we've learned from each other and the small nuances now are just becoming we're, we're the same many <laughs> of us now um so just working together listening to other people following the pathways um has been great i think i think the challenge probably even more so than working with fellows working with junior residents is is consistency like it's just you know like you said if you said if they came from another hpb service they might have different imagine when they come from trauma or you know like they come from a different world and then they show up on service and you're like no no no, this is how we do it uh and i think that that's where an inpatient hpb can make a huge difference reinforcing that and, and keeping that consistency because the reality is that it's just the reality of working with junior residents. They're very influenced by wherever they just came from. And if they were on trauma and the patient's heart rate goes up, they give fluid. And that doesn't always work in, in the HPV world. So uh, I think having the APP there to sort of slap their wrists a little bit probably makes a big difference. Well, speaking of that, let's. I'd love to hear from Jenilette about um, different, I mean, so Jenilette has a very different role um, and one that um, is very important to us as trainees as well, because I feel like I was in part trained by Jenilette in the yeah, operating room, yeah, quite frankly. Yeah. And we all are, and everyone comes to Dr. Vote's operating room, and 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 everyone gets a great experience with Dr. Vote, but your experience with Dr. Vote is also an experience with Jenilette. So Jenilette, could you maybe tell us a little bit about bridging the gap from seeing patients in the clinic for Dr. Vote and with Dr. Vote, and then then the next day operating on them with Dr. Bote and, and then as well as your, your role in decreasing variation of care in, in the operating room. Yeah, and, yeah, and honestly, Janelette, I think I think describing your, you know, a typical week for you, what your practice is like, because I think it's very unique, and then how that happened. You know, how did you get to that point where you're sort of, your practice is a little bit different than all the rest of the APPs? You both are correct. Um, at least for me, um, my passion, as you both know, is the operating room. I love the operating room. Um, it all started from PA school. And uh, my first um, open abdominal case was during my birthday. I was on call with a surgeon, and I was so excited to do it. And it was it just started from there. But um, I entered into a practice that's already well established. Um, Dr. Vote, as you know, is very well experienced, and he has his another APP who's been with him for about 17 years when I went in there and it's pretty intimidating. And so where I fit in the role was a little bit intimidating and confusing at first, but 
as Tim, uh, Dr. Breland was mentioning, what my everyday or every week um, schedule look like is basically on Mondays, I either have a um, administration day or I help somebody else in clinic. And then on Tuesday, I go ahead and go into OR and um, help with a case or two. And after I work in the OR, I prepare for clinic, a full day clinic on Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, after clinic, I finish every, everything that I need to do because I need to prepare for a case or two the next day. And then Friday, again, prepare for another clinic. So my week is pretty full, and, um, but very lively. Um, and I would never not have it any, any, any other way because um, some people ask me, you know, why don't you just choose between operating room and, and the clinic? And I love both of them. Um, I love creating the relationship with my patients and meeting them for the very first time when they get diagnosed with stage four cancer for the most, most part. And um, continuing that care into the operating room and seeing them before they get, you know, uh, uh, they get intubated. And then actually knowing the plan before going to the operating room and also um, emphasizing that plan and reminding the fellows what we need to do. Uh, and then sometimes things don't go the way we planned in the OR and we have to kind of carry that over to um, speaking with the family, speaking with the patient in the clinic. I think that's such a valuable thing to have because I see it um, live. I see it for the most part, you know, the decision process that was made in the operating room and then um, communicate that in, in the clinic. And I think that that connection and that bridge is so valuable to have at least as an APP because I see the full story. Um, now I don't see some stories, which is inpatient, which Melissa and I have been working together for the past six years and we actually share the same office and she tells me what goes on in the inpatient uh, world. She tells me you know, what medication this patient's gonna get discharged with. So I check for that in the outpatient world. And sometimes it also bridges um, our role together. So I tell her what happens in the operating room, if the patient was tacky, if their baseline was 100 um, and their blood pressure is low during the baseline. And she tells me that hap happening in the inpatient world. And I tell her that's okay because that's their baseline. And so that kind of carries over and bridges over and make sure that we get we get this continuity of care. So um, it's a little bit challenging, at least for me, because um, right now in MD Anderson, I'm actually the only one in the OR. Um, so it's hard to kind of talk to somebody um, who can relate to what needs to be done or improvement that I can make. But what I can say for sure is the credit towards the fellows because starting off, you know, attending uh, surgeons are very focused on teaching the fellows, but not the APP. And so I really do credit a lot of what I know and what I'm continue to learn from fellows um, coming through our services. And they're the one that took the time to teach me because I'm coming in as a new grad. This is my first, my first job out of um, PA school. And they really took the time to mentor me and to make sure that I persistently go to the operating room. Um, and continue to be there. And so now I'm always there um, and and it's, it feels weird if I'm not in the operating room during the week, so. Yeah, can well, you talk a little, Jenna, I, I just wanted to have you kind of comment on the relationship in the OR with another, with a trainee. Cause I think that's probably the biggest roadblock to APPs getting to the operating room is that 
it, it feels like within the institution that you'd be like stealing something from a junior resident or, or something like that. And it, you know, I think you have that very unique role where as a, as a trainee, I felt like I got to do more in the operating room because you were there. Uh, now that requires a very senior attending who is willing to leave the room. I think that's, that's one key aspect, but it also sort of requires your personality where there, there was sort of, you know, it's a little bit of a dance. Like you had to give us some leeway, but then be able to kind of tell us when we were going wrong. And how do you approach that? You know, you have a new fellow in the OR who thinks they know how to do liver surgery, but doesn't. Uh, and how do you, you know, how do you direct them in the right way without, um, I don't know, you, you come off very humble and not, not trying to step on our toes, but I'm quite certain that I could have never figured out the Vote retractor without you. And I still use it exactly that way, you know, in my practice. So, yeah, I think it, it, like you said, it's very, actually very scary to shift over from one month to the other. Um, my take into um, a new fellow is to actually give them the most confident I have in the world. I think that is the perspective that I'm coming from. Um, and if they do, stumble or hesitate or make a mistake, I would ask them what they would do. Um, if Dr. Bote wasn't here, what would you do? Um, and more often than not, they get it correct and, and they do it. And um, I'm there to guide them. I'm, I'm there to work and collaborate with them as an integrated provider and not necessarily steal a case because this is, this is their time to learn. And I think that it I respect that and that's very valuable. And I think my role is to support the trainees. Um, and when it comes to, you know, uh, encouraging them to be more confident, that's another aspect of um, being in the operating room because for some reason, some fellows just freeze. Um, I think asking them how they can teach me kind of eases the, the atmosphere and be like, Treat me as a, as a resident, you know, because coming out of this fellowship, if you go into academic institution, you will have to get to you get used to um, teaching students. Um, and so teach me as trainee and what would you do? You know, if this was your case, what would you do and what would you tell me to do? And so I think that giving them um, the benefit of the doubt and definitely having confidence in them um, makes them more confident in the OR and 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 um, that also kind of tends to have them um, take my advice as a support instead of a, a, a like a clashing um, opinion so and again like you said having Dr. Vote as a senior surgeon um, kind of emphasizes that trust um, between me and my surgeon and therefore respecting what I say. Sarah, Lindsay, do any APPs at your institutions go to the operating room? Uh, we do have some APPs that, that go in the operating room. Um, there's a first assist program at one of the satellite hospitals. Um, we actually just hired on a new APP that's um, going to spend most of her time in the outpatient setting, but we'll have a couple of days a week in the OR as well. Um, I will say it's not as common um, because of the, I think, you know, having the fellows and the residents and just the sheer number of, of other um, providers to support in the OR, um, but we do have some APPs, um, less so at main campus than, at, like I said, the first assist program at one of our smaller satellite hospitals. Yeah, that's kind of why I asked Lindsay, too. 
Yeah, we it wasn't as consistent until we started doing more robotic HPV cases, and we do have one um, dedicated robotic HPV PA who's now been doing that for you know three or four years, and is is very helpful, especially to the fellows uh, to Jenilette's point at, when they get to that training. Great. So yeah, Lindsay, we are starting to uh, kind of certify um, our APPs who go into OR to assist with robotic cases. I do mostly open cases. Robotic cases are very intimidating to me, but I think it's gonna be such a valuable tool, especially for the trainees, because they want to spend time in the console instead of in the bedside. So I think that's a, that's a great way to start um, um, just getting a spotlight on what APPs can do in the OR. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, switching conversations a little bit. I'm curious, you know, kind of what you guys think about how surgeons should advocate for more APP physicians. And, you know, I, I think, Lindsay, you probably have a good insight into this if you're in a manager position. And just to, just to add on top of that, just for the people who are listening, like, what are the best avenues to go to bring to your management to show value to get um, an APP on your team? Yeah. And so, as I said, this is one of my favorite topics, which I could ramble for a while. So in an effort to be concise, obviously patient satisfaction and surgeon satisfaction and all of those sort of more warm and fuzzy things are one argument. But I think there are three more objective arguments. One is is billable value. And Morgan touched on this earlier. It's a really challenging thing um, to quantify billable value for APPs both ambulatory in the OR and inpatient. And this depends on sort of historical institutional practices. It depends on if APPs are charges are billed out under surgeons or if they're billed out under the APP. Um, so if you are trying to make a case for needing more APPs, trying to find out what objective data you can actually get, how charges are being dropped, how's the revenue coming in, where is that money being allocated to, that's sort of the easy thing. Um, there also is a huge non-billable value component to APPs, and this is a really sort of ill-defined topic, but there is some precedent within the oncology literature primarily, and that can be extrapolated over to surgical oncology, so that I think is another argument. And then the third is sort of this profit contribution margin topic, which I think all the ladies on here who have come to HPVA have heard me talk about, because this is, it's really important. It's not just about the dollars that I bill. It's the, you know, this is, doesn't sound that nice, but ultimately it's, it's my, I am worth or I cost a certain amount per hour. That is less than Chris Wolfgang costs per hour. So if you want me to do a set of work and Chris Wolfgang to do a set of work, it is less expensive for me to do that work and he can do something else. So it isn't just about, how much are we billing or how much is coming in or what is our you know, reimbursement rate? It really is a very multifaceted um, yeah. argument. And I think it can be really well done if you have the tools. Some payers will reimburse the same for the APP and the surgeon actually. But ultimately, if he and I both go to clinic and see 25 patients, the hospital spent more or the university yeah. spent more yeah. for him to do that work than they did for me. And so- yeah. It's yeah. just that argument is also worth extrapolating or exploring uh, with your administration. Yeah. But his dollar, I mean, 
the his dollar value to the institution is in the operating room or or getting grants and things. So if you can augment that ability to spend more time, it's like a plane not being in the air. You know what I mean? Uh, exactly. I, I, trying to say, yeah. yeah. So I kind of I, I want to touch just a little bit more on how you take care of a patient every day along with your team and are able to learn about the patients and then bring that into a new iteration of a care pathway. Because I don't think that's really possible without you, to be honest with you. Um, when you have a new trainee every month, the, the, the constant is you, really. And um, it seems like in like a learning healthcare system type model that it's, it's so much more efficient um, with you guys alongside us. Yeah, I think, you know, we've, we are fortunate enough to have, I think we're more heavy, um, fellow heavy than resident heavy um, at Anderson, and are fortunate enough to have two to three year complex uh, fellowship. And so when you have people that are rotating monthly for two to three years, um, there's, you've got that long term investment with them and I think an opportunity to kind of help for us three kind of bridge that gap of we know the surgeon's preferences. We know you all are board certified surgeons and we're just trying and patient safety is, is in the middle. And so I think we, we help to kind of bridge all of that together um, with kind of the monthly rotation and things of that nature. But I think, again, the pathways have helped. They're not, it's a blueprint. It is not a written in stone. You must follow these things. It is here's a blueprint. Go assess. Go decide if things need to be pushed or pulled in either direction. Um, but I I appreciate that the fellows are so great with us because we're always constantly asking questions. And I have my favorite game of Pictionary of like, okay, what did you guys do today? And they grab my paper and start drawing things. And it's it's a full circle, I think, education between the fellows, us, and the attendings, um, because we do have such tight relationships with our attendings. I kind of laugh that I've got, you know, someone I almost spend more time with than I do my husband sometimes, because I, over a span of almost a decade, I can close my eyes and tell you almost a prediction of their exact sentence they're going to say when you report something to them. So it, but that's because the attendings also took great uh, effort and time and energy to invest with us. And it is, it's a nice relationship and it's a great dance. You have a good dance partner and then you get a, another dance partner in when the fellow comes. So I think it's like a kind of a team dance that, that works or sometimes it doesn't work and you kind of have to reassess the, the relationship sometimes. Um, but I think when you're in the spirit of transparency amongst your team and you know everything that's going on that happened in the operating room, you're prepared and you know, like kind of which, I always tell them, which spidey sense do I need to put up for this person because what happened in the operating room? So we're like ready to go. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate the education of the attending, of the fellow, of the team camaraderie and the transparency amongst the group. I think it makes a very easy, um, a very kind of almost chaotic, fun job easier when you have such good teammates around you and you surround yourself with like really good people. Yes. <laughs> so 
I just wanted to add on kind of to to Morgan's point as well, but just you know we're we're in a unique um, position as inpatient APTs where because we see and Sarah also touched on this, we see so many patients we can recognize certain things, and part of um, I think this unique position that we're in, we're able to kind of pick up on these subtle um, maybe nuances about um, how our patients are doing, and if we have an idea. And this is, again, where quality improvement can, can really come into play and, and can lead to some really neat research projects. If we have this idea that, you know, I noticed that this portion of patients are acting a little bit differently. Well, let's look into that. What did we do differently? How did we, how did our post-operative management, was it the post-operative management? Um, did that make a difference in how patients are doing? And so we can pick up on these kind of subtle clues that then we can bring back, look at the data, be objective about it. And then start making decisions on, well, okay, most of our patients seem to be doing really well on this way. What if we translate that across the board? Will we get the same results? Can we get better results? Can we? Can that then um, lead to better patient care, decreased length of stay, those kinds of things? So I think it, it puts us in a really unique position to be able to make those decisions and make those observations that are then translatable. Yeah, Whitney, what do you think? Because I, I, I see, I just see that as a, another incredible value um, for APPs is in the decrease in variation and, and as Melissa said, maybe decrease the length of stay, for example, because again, just add to what some of the stuff that Lindsay discussed is that that adds to margin for not even just the surgeon, but to the hospital, right? I mean, if you, if you all of a sudden your whipples are going home on day four or five rather than historically eight or nine, that is a much, that's a serious margin, right? And a lot of that is just through care coordination um, and attention to detail and decrease in variation. Yeah, and I think that that's part of the um, us being on the floor and being available and seeing the patient throughout the day instead of, you know, in the past where the fellow comes in the morning and then the fellow comes in the evening, we're there all day. And so we can move people along. We're not just writing orders in the morning and in the evening, you know, um, they had a bowel movement. Well, let's get their diet going, you know, um, and so we can start preparing discharges a couple of days in advance. If we have any medication issues that are going to come up with prescriptions, we can get that going. I think it helps to, you know, facilitate early discharge um, and uh, does in the long run save the hospital money when you can get people in and out um, and it improves patient care. Yeah, I mean, I think what strikes me as very unique kind of putting together what you all have said is, you know, you you can have an uh, intern or a junior resident kind of at the bedside all day. So that's not unique, right? Having, having bedside care, but longitudinal bedside care is is very unique, right? There, There's no resident that's seen, you know, a thousand Whipples in post-op care. It just doesn't exist. And so, you know, the surgeon may have, but the surgeon comes to the bedside once a day and, you know, kind of takes everybody else's reports, right? So that ability to be at the bedside all day and do that over the course of hundreds of patients, I think is, it's what's so special about, about the role that you guys play. And I think it's really, it just doesn't exist outside of your role, which I think is, makes it uh, incredibly valuable. So maybe we should spend just maybe... Uh, some time talking about the HPBA and the APP symposium and, you know, where it's, you know, what the history of it is um, and what we've accomplished so far. And I know that I've been to some of the symposium and they've been great. 
um, and then where you see it going. I was just thinking, I, I don't even actually know what year that this all started. I can't even, you know, guess maybe, I don't know, Morgan, what do you think, 2012, 13? I, I think 13. Many years ago. Um, so the um, many years ago, I think it was around 2013, several of the surgeons, Dr. Vote being one of them, and Tim Pollack, who was at Hopkins at the time, really started to, to recognize the value of the APP role in HPV surgery um, and were sort of novel in their verbalized interest of, you know, hey, why don't we start including this group of, of people uh, more actively in the meeting? And I was at that time sort of tapped to help bring that to fruition. And so we had two or three years of, of sort of more informal um, meetings, putting agendas together and, and getting a small group of, of core people who really have continued um, from an APP perspective to be involved even all of these years later. And uh, over that time, we've developed a more formal sort of committee and chair structure. And I am uh, very uh, honored to say that Sarah Reed from Duke is our, our chair this year. And she has done a wonderful job putting together some really exciting content. And so uh, I'll let her tell you a little bit about that. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, just to echo what, what Lindsay said, I've been part of HPBA since 2014. I'm very grateful for the encouragement of uh, Dr. Brian Clary, who's been a sponsor of mine, um, who really encouraged me to get involved, and which is where I met you know, this wonderful um, group of providers. And I've been really pleased over the last several years to see our APP involvement really evolve and grow. You know, in prior years, we had a symposium that was typically the day before the general session. And then now that has evolved into being part of the general session and having physician involvement and keynote speakers and attendance of participation. And I think it's been really valuable. Um, you know, our membership has grown as well. Between 2015 and 2020, our membership had tripled. Um, Last year, we had over 50% of members apply for a travel grant. So the foundation generously increased that from three to 10. And so, you know, this organization has had such tremendous support of APPs, which, um, you know, I've personally been very grateful for. And we've really seen the, the growth of APPs within this organization. Um, last year, we were all together in Miami, at least most of us. Um, <laughs> apologies, Morgan, you, were, you hit the travel ban the day before your flight. Um, but, you know, it was really our last time together before the pandemic hit. And so we're really looking forward to the symposium this year to hopefully be in person together, um, realizing that many institutions, my own included, are, are still, you know, working through travel bans and limitations, um, but would be prepared for a hybrid symposium. So one of the other um, things I've been pleased with is our content has kind of changed over the years. So initially we focused a lot on what does the APP do and what's the practice model? And while that is still very critically important, we're now transitioning to what's the clinical content that we as APPs want to focus on and, and what's new and, and up and coming and what do we want updates about? Um, and so I think, you know, this year, again, we'll be prepared for a, a hybrid um, symposium and we have, you know, a multidisciplinary panel. We have a keynote speaker from MD Anderson, Dr. Maxwell, we're really excited about who's going to be doing a, a pre-recorded presentation. We have a dietitian from UT Southwestern doing the same. And we'll be talking about things, you know, in line with our, our theme of, um, you know, advancing through discovery. So we'll talk about molecular genetics and what does the APP need to know. 
um, as well as kind of where are we with pancreatic cancer in 2021 and you know managing the bowel duct injuries that that are you know still so challenging for for many of us. Um, we'll touch upon a little bit of you know some challenging cases and talk about some diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, and one of the things I'm most excited about is we're going to end with a panel about you know, caring for our HPV patients during this pandemic, which I think has been uniquely challenging to all of us. Um, and we're gonna include one of our patient advocacy partners. You know, it really takes a village to take care of these patients. And I hope our symposium will kind of highlight, you know, the village um, that we work with to care for our patients. That's great. Yeah, so I just want, before we move on, just wanna put in a plug that um, for everybody listening um, who is either attending the HPVA this year or if it ends up being a hybrid type platform, um, that the APP symposium uh, is at 2.30 p.m. to 5.15 p.m. on Wednesday, August 4th. So we should all be there. Um, I know I will. Um, I just want to encourage all of the uh, attendings who maybe have new APPs or are new to an institution and are really trying to identify how to best incorporate some APPs into their practice. This APP Symposium through HPVA is a really unique opportunity to introduce those APPs to some really sort of HPV veterans. Um, and you're really never going to find sort of the complement of expertise that this group has. So it's a really great way to show some support and interest in your APP, which seeks to retention, but also um, you know, get some benefit to your practice as well. Uh, on that note, if a young APP is looking for resources, do you guys have like a resources page or is there somewhere that they can go to get started? Looks like Morgan's Morgan's got the answer up there. <laughs> Should we just give Morgan's not, cell phone number not, out? Not is that, no, um, you know, that sounds great. working on like mentorship of uh, kind of a mentorship program of being able to kind of pair up a more senior um, AHPBA APP and maybe a more junior. Um, APP so that we have resources. We do journal club um, where we just have our, our, our big discussion and then we have our committee meeting thereafter. So there are a lot of opportunities out there um, to in, kind of engage how little or how much, how, however much you want. Um, and where so we just where would somebody get started? At, where would somebody get started with that? I, I'm happy to offer my email. Um, it's, it's just Sarah with an H dot read um, at Duke.edu. And, and anyone who's interested can get in touch with me. We're working on um, developing this mentorship program. But in the meantime, anyone can can certainly email me. Um, and I just want to put a plug out there, too, to community surgeons. You know, a lot of who we interact mm -hmm. with in India, but there's still a lot of APPs doing really great work in community hospitals. And we may not always cross paths with them, but I think this is a really good organization to get involved with. Um, and they could certainly, you know, add a lot of value. So, um, you know, any attendees, please, with questions, email me, um, and then encourage your APPs to get involved. Well, certainly. We're definitely looking forward to the symposium um, and uh, definitely looking forward to being in person in Miami. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for having us. Yeah, we had a little text stream going. We we're all a little bit nervous, um, but this has been really fun. All right, well, thank you all very much for your time.